Alexander, and thank you, Ricky, for reading. Uh, let me add my welcome uh, to those that we've had from Simon and Mike. I'm Chris, I'm the Assistant Minister. It's great to be here with you this morning. Uh, why don't we pray uh, as we prepare ourselves to look at God's Word. Lord, may your Word live in us, and may it bear much fruit to your glory. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Um, I wonder which of the following two characters you more identify with at this time of year. Every Who down in Whoville likes Christmas a lot. That's character one, or character type number one. But the Grinch who lived just north of Whoville did not. The Grinch hated Christmas, the whole Christmas season. Now, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. It could be, perhaps, that his shoes were too tight. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. For those unfamiliar, that is, of course, Dr. Seuss's famous fable, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. I wonder how you think about yourself with respect to that story. Would you consider yourself a Christmas who? or a Christmas Grinch. The Grinch doesn't only not share the joy of the Who's, he tries to take it away from them, doesn't he? If you know the story well, he tries to do this by stealing all their presents, but it doesn't work. Eventually, they still celebrate Christmas, and the Grinch learns a valuable lesson that Christmas must be about more than just presents. But the name Grinch, it's become a term, hasn't it, to refer to someone who doesn't fully subscribe to the joy of the season, who doesn't quite get into the Christmas spirit, even perhaps spoils it for others. And I wonder how you feel about that. Have you ever been called a Christmas Grinch? Has everyone ever said to you, come on, it's Christmas time, rejoice, be at peace? Are you someone who says that to other people, rejoice, be at peace? Or are you someone who says, just leave me in Which one are you? Joy and peace. As Simon said earlier in his opening, they're common themes at Christmas. We see them all over Christmas cards. These words are thrown around. What do they mean? You know, those of us who have been around a while here in Australia, we have a sense that they have some vaguely biblical connotations. But what they often mean to most people at this time of year is comfort. That's kind of what peace means. And merriment. That seems to be what joy and rejoicing means but the problem with those ways of understanding those words if that's what they mean then that can be so easily ruined can't it Simon also alluded to this the joy of Christmas costs money doesn't it presents decorations lots of food money's tight that's tough and Christmas time doesn't magically make all our troubles disappear It's not like if we have relational stress in November, suddenly it disappears in December. And so if being happy and comfortable is all that constitutes peace and joy, then for all sorts of reasons, rejoicing can seem like the last thing you want to do at Christmas. And maybe that is how you are feeling right now in the lead up to the 25th of December. But of course, just a bit of reflection tells us that's actually not really what rejoicing is. 
True rejoicing comes from celebrating and delighting in things that really matter, that really matter to us, that really make a difference to us, things that speak to our sense of identity, things that affirm our value and the value we have in others, things that give us meaning and hope, perhaps when we thought all meaning and hope was lost. When we experience those things, then we rejoice in a way that's very different just to happiness and comfort. And this is helpful to consider because our passage this morning also speaks of rejoicing. And we don't want to dismiss that. And this isn't just any passage. This is an often quoted passage at Christmas, Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. And the rejoicing it calls for and the peace it promises, it comes in a particular context. It comes in the context of threatening circumstances, moral and spiritual failure, alienation from God, dark things that couldn't seem further from rejoicing and peace. But in doing so, Isaiah 9, 1-7 shows us why the call to rejoice at Christmas isn't, why it means something, why it's not just a platitude, why it's not just a pretty Christmas card. And if you're someone who struggles to find the joy in Christmas, Isaiah 9 is for you. It helps us to see that in the midst of darkness, spiritual and otherwise, there is true light and joy to be found. And if you're someone who has no problem getting into the spirit of Christmas, then Isaiah 9 is for you. It's an encouragement and a challenge for us not to settle for surface level joy and comfort, but to find the joy that can't be counted in an abundance of presents or quality of Christmas parties. A joy found in a child given for us, a son born to us, and the true peace that he alone brings. So let's have a look then at Isaiah 9. It starts with a significant word, nevertheless. Now nevertheless as a word, it can have both negative and positive vibes, can't it? You know, when a driving instructor says, you did such a great job in your test today, nevertheless, negative. If your boss says to you, your mistake has cost this company millions of dollars, nevertheless. Positive, right? Optimistic, hopeful that I may not get sacked. The situation, that's the same here. The situation surrounding Isaiah 9, it's bleak. God's people and their leaders have sinned. In your little, in your service outline, I've kind of, that little historical background, it should be under this point now. And in chapter 7, under siege from enemies closer to home, the king of Judah, Ahaz, a descendant of King David, he has gone against Isaiah the prophet's word. He has gone against God's word, and he's made an alliance with the aggressive new superpower, Assyria. And it's a terrible decision. And by making this decision, Ahaz, he's shown his hand. He's shown that he doesn't really trust God to provide for him, to protect him and the kingdom of Judah. And in chapter 8, God announces, therefore, that his hand of judgment is against Judah. It's in the, against them in the form of their brutal, godless new overlords. This alliance effectively makes Judah a slave to Assyria, economically, politically, and spiritually. And so by the end of chapter 8, it's, it's darkness and gloom. Just read verse 22, speaking of God's people, they will look toward the earth and see only distress darkness and the gloom of affliction and they will be driven into thick darkness nevertheless nevertheless 
chapter 9, verse 1. The gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. When I used to live in the inner west, I used to do, I still do some running. And I, there, there was a run called the Bay Run. It was a seven-kilometer circuit. And sometimes I would start pre-dawn. And pre-dawn, it, it can be as dark as it is in the middle of the night and you're starting off what feels like at midnight it's it's completely dark and there are significant stretches of this run that are not well lit whatsoever but throughout the course of the run the sun comes up a light would dawn often quite suddenly and by the time i got back to the car park everything was bathed in sunlight the darkness was long forgotten and I'm sure you have your own light in darkness experience, something like that. And that is what Isaiah, that's how he depicts things here. He sees a glorious reversal for God's people, brought about by God's grace, devastation. It'll give way to glory. And so certain is this in, in Isaiah's view of, of God and of history, you may have noticed he speaks about the current dark situation as the former times. It may as well be history. Indeed, throughout the passage, Isaiah alternates between future language and past language, doesn't he? He says, God will bring honor. The bloody garments of war will be burned. Then he also says, a light has dawned, for you have shattered their oppressive yoke. That which is plainly future is spoken of as already accomplished. This is the zeal of God for his people. Verse 7. This is the sovereignty of God over all things. All of this, all of this is cause for great joy. And we see that, don't we? We see that instead of despairing and lamenting, God's people will rejoice before him. They'll truly rejoice. Like a people dependent on the land rejoice at the time of harvest. As a victorious people at the end of a long struggle rejoice after the battle is won. God's people will rejoice because, verse 4, they will be released from oppression. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke. They'll rejoice. They'll rejoice because they will have seen once and for all the end of war. Verse 5, for the trampling boot of battle will be burned. There is a light for these people. There is rejoicing in their future. Because sin and rebellion, sin and rebellion are not enough to keep God away from them. Sin and rebellion are not enough to keep God from making himself known to them. Sin and rebellion are not enough to keep God from loving them. Now, this is helpful for us to hear this morning. Maybe this is something that you are aware of. Maybe you know your life is not lived with your creator God at its center. Maybe you are aware of the sin and rebellion in your life. Maybe very aware, all too aware. And you think, well, then God couldn't possibly interested in me this is God's posture towards humanity and if that is you hear this sin and rebellion are not enough to keep God away from you sin and rebellion are not enough to keep God from making himself known to you sin and rebellion are not enough to keep God from loving you and as I goes on God will make himself known he will bring this light and joy and he will do it in an unlikely way he'll do it in a humble way the humblest way 
the birth of a vulnerable child. Verse 6. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. Who is this child? This future ruler on whose shoulders is the government? Is he just another human son of David, like Solomon we saw last week? Or is he something more? Well, verse 7 tells us that his dominion will be vast, its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. That's like last week, right? A forever kingdom. And a forever kingdom suggests a forever king. So far, so to Samuel 7. But Isaiah tells us even more about this king. Isaiah gives us names for this king. In fact, they're not just names, they're titles. And they all work together. Look at that in verse 6. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Just just chew on that language for a moment. This language can only apply to one who is at once a child born to us and Mighty God. That is the ideal monarch. And like 2 Samuel 7, this oracle points directly to the coming Messiah, the great son of David, the true light. And for a nation suffering division and defeat, war and foreign oppression, economic and spiritual bankruptcy, this is a truly wonderful hope to hold out. And yet God's people would go on for centuries, continuing under the yoke of more powerful nations. And it wasn't until the dawn of the first century, under the yoke of the most powerful oppressor God's people had yet seen, that this hope was finally realized. Matthew recounts Jesus' birth, his entry as a child, with minimal fuss. If you've ever read Matthew chapter 1, there's very little detail about Jesus' actual birth. But what detail that is there is significant. It's Matthew makes it clear from the very beginning that this is no ordinary son that's being born. This is David's son, chapter 1, verse 6. Not only that, this is Emmanuel, God with us, chapter 1, verse 23. And in chapter 3, in the bit that Amanda read for us, Matthew tells us in verse 13 that Jesus, now a grown man, came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. There's a significant portrait being painted for us. And then in chapter 4, when John the Baptist has been put in prison, we read that Jesus, what did he do? He withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth behind and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali. Matthew tells us that this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And then he proceeds to quote Isaiah 9, verse 1 and 2. According to Matthew, Jesus is none other than the child of Isaiah chapter 9, the promised child. That means that Jesus is the one upon whose shoulders is the government, all human rule. That means that Jesus, this child born in the humblest of circumstances, in a small Jewish village, is wonderful counsellor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. And that means that Jesus is the source of the deepest and only truly lasting rejoicing 
that God's people can ever experience. That is an astounding claim to make. It's an audacious use of Isaiah chapter 9. And so Matthew has to justify his claim, and then that's what we see him doing. In order to do this, he includes one after the other three events from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry that point to the truth of what he's saying. His baptism, Jesus' temptation, and his preaching. In Jesus' baptism, we see that Jesus is the beloved son. John recognizes that Jesus is more than a mere man to the point where he's hesitant about baptizing him. But Jesus says, you must do this. And we're told after that happens, the heavens open. Spirit of God descends on Jesus and a loud voice is heard saying, this is my beloved son. I take delight in him. This is my beloved son. This is mighty God, the son. And then after this, Matthew tells us that Jesus, he enters the wilderness like his forebear, Ahaz. He is tested. He is tempted. In Jesus' case, by the very embodiment of God's ultimate enemy, Satan. He is tempted to give up relying on God for provision. He's tempted to give up on trusting God for protection. And he's tempted to give up allegiance to God for personal power and prestige. But unlike Ahaz, Unlike any human being, Jesus passed those tests 100%. He remained faithful. And then after that, Matthew tells us that Jesus begins his preaching ministry. He begins in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali. Do you know where that is? That's in the northern kingdom of Israel. That is the area where God's judgment upon Israel, upon its sin, fell first and foremost as Assyria took the country. And his message is, repent, because the kingdom of God has come near. Not the kingdom of Assyria, not the kingdom of Rome, not the kingdom of self, the kingdom of God has come near. And that's why his call is to repent. Repent from sin. Because sin is self-rule. And Ahaz did that, didn't he, back in Isaiah? He acted without reference to God. He thought he knew best. And it plunged Judah into even greater darkness and despair. But the sin that caused Judah's generations of oppression remained the fundamental cause of our oppression, of all oppression. Until a change occurs in us, all attempts to find find guidance, to find deliverance, to find true peace and joy, all those attempts will find only darkness oftentimes materially, physically, always spiritually. It might look like pursuing life, ambitions without regard for God. That might look like pursuing lifestyles of greed and gratification without regard for God's vision for human flourishing. But I thought Jacob expressed it well in his interview because darkness doesn't always look like darkness and there can be otherwise good things that still show that we are walking not in the light of God's love and our sin it not only keeps us from living God's way but it keeps us from living for God's hope and eternity with him in a restored world in his forever kingdom and ultimately the darkness of sin would take Jesus to the cross wouldn't it 
into spiritual abandonment on our behalf. He was cast into the land of darkness on our behalf. And while tragic, it is also glorious. It's also something worth rejoicing. Why? Because he alone could go through that darkness and come out the other side. There was a light for the people of Judah. There was a light for the people in Galilee in the first century. And there is a light for us today. Because sin and rebellion are not enough to keep God away from us. Are not enough to keep God from making himself known to us. Are not enough to keep God from loving us. And of course, we can't, we can't have it both ways. We can't choose, continue to choose our sin and have the light. But if we do wish to be freed from our sin and the eternal darkness of its consequences, nothing can prevent God's light from shining on us. And by coming to Jesus in repentance and faith as the one who has taken God's judgment upon himself, then we get to move from people walking in darkness to those on whom a great light has dawned, the greatest of lights, and continues to shine. Because before God's throne of judgment, when Jesus look, when God looks, the Father looks at us, he does not see us in terms of holiness. He sees Jesus' faithfulness. The delight God the Father has in the Son becomes the delight he has in us as sons of him through Jesus. And the victory Jesus showed over Satan in the wilderness and ultimately at the cross, becomes our victory. Even in life today, we are able to say no to sin as a result of that victory and yes to God. So let me encourage you, this Christmas, rejoice. It's okay to rejoice. But of course, the true peace and joy of Christmas isn't found by tapping into some nebulous Christmas spirit. It's in the knowledge that your future has been assured by the child born to you. It comes from the peace we can have with God, the peace that that can bring to our broken relationships, the peace that can bring to our broken politics, our broken environment, the peace that that will ultimately bring to our broken world. I want to conclude by showing a short clip which sums up what Christians believe in under 90 seconds. It's not a specifically Christmas-themed thing, but the language used by the presenter, a man named Glenn Scrivener, it very much reflects the hope of Isaiah 9 and its fulfillment in Jesus, the child born to us who is the light of the world. In the beginning there was light and life and love. There was a father loving his son in the joy of the Holy Spirit and everything has come from light and life and love. And out of this has come a world that is destined to share in light and life and love. But you know that this world is not like that. I know this world is not like that. I look around and I see darkness and death and disconnection. Where's that come from? Well, we've turned from the light and when you turn from the light, where else do you go but darkness? And when you turn from love, where else do you go but disconnection? When you turn from life, where else do you go but death? So this is the kind of world we live in. But what does, what does love do when love sees the beloved in trouble? Love says, your pit will be my pit. Your plight will be my plight. Your debts will be my debts. Your darkness will be my darkness. Your death will be my death. So who is Jesus? Jesus is love come down. The son of the father comes and, and becomes our brother. 
to be with us in the darkness, to take that darkness on himself on the cross, to take that disconnection on himself, to even to take that death that we all deserve for turning from God, took that on himself on the cross, plunged it down into the hell that it deserves, and he rose up again to light and life and love, and he says, you in the darkness, do you want my light? You in death, do you want my life? You in disconnection, do you want my love? And anyone who simply says yes to Jesus, we get Jesus in our life. We get his father as our father. We get his spirit as our spirit. We get his future as our future. It's for free and it's forever. So do you want Jesus? Jesus, we thank you that you love us so much, that you're prepared to leave the perfection of your eternal relationship with the Father and the Spirit, to become a human child, to grow and ultimately to take our darkness upon yourself. And we do pray this Christmas. That as we struggle in various ways with the reality of life in a world that is still dark for you in so many ways. The brokenness and pain. May you speak to us and help us see that we can know that we are loved. We can know that we have life before us now and forever. And help us to hold that up to our friends and family. In a moment, our band's going to come up and help us sing our last two songs. Uh, you might want to just finish wrapping up your uh, welcome engage cards. And during our second song, that's where you can pop your engage cards into the red bags.